Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 26, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shifflett. Good evening, sir. Hey, uh, not sure what was going on there. If you heard a little bit of different stuff on the audio intro, uh, my apologies. Who knows? But we won't worry about that because we have a great guest tonight talking about something a little different. About once every year, um, uh, we have a sports guest on, uh, a lot of times an author, and uh, that is our one for, I guess, 2021, Clayton Schroeder, who is a historian a Ph.D. up in the New England area, wrote a book about Atlanta professional sports. And this is not going to be X's and O's. You know, we're not going to talk about the outfield of the Braves from 1982 or the Falcons, you know, under Michael Vick or anything like that. We're going to talk about more the social, political, cultural um, aspects of professional sports in Atlanta when Clayton comes on. And it should be a very, very interesting discussion. Now, if we end up asking one or two sports questions, you know, please forgive us, but that's kind of what's going to go on tonight. Uh, but until then, been a lot to talk about, um, a lot of it kind of overarching, but we're going to start with something else that's really not overarching that was, uh, of course, caught our attention in Georgia. Um, Donald Trump had a rally in Perry, Georgia uh, last night, and probably nine-tenths of it was the the usual hits, if you will. Uh, but he got on to Governor Brian Kemp, which he is no fan of. And he... Just dropped you, David. Yeah, we just lost you. Uh, David's been having a little problem, uh, so we'll continue to talk and hope David comes back in with us. Uh, we were talking about uh, Trump's rally in Perry last night. Uh, saw some pictures from it, um, some some interesting-looking assortment of folks with, uh, you know, the usual regalia and uh, some of the outfits they were wearing. There were some of the usual suspects among the politicians, including our own beloved Marjorie Taylor Greene from up here. Vernon Jones was there take, having his picture taken with various QAnon uh, dying supporters. Uh, but Trump made the news last night, Catherine, uh, as David mentioned before he dropped off on us, that he actually blasted Kemp from the podium and actually said something to the effect that, you know, 
anybody would be better than Kemp. Hey, Stacy, how would you like to be governor? Now, there was a few folks in the crowd that didn't care for that, but Catherine, he so hates Governor Kemp that I believe he genuinely would prefer Stacey Abrams if she beat Kemp, don't you? I do. I, I was um I I was when I when I saw that headline I was like, What? What is he saying? What is this and the fact that he didn't uh mention any other any of the other Republicans that are running uh, against Brian Kemp, I think is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Instead of singling out Stacey Abrams, he could have singled out another Republican. Um, but yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, I'm not sure it, I don't think it helps Stacey Abrams with, in any way. Um, but I do think it's um, an interesting turn of events for um, Donald Trump to come out in, and actually mention her and consider that she would, she would be better than Brian Kemp. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, while we're talking, I'm going to be saying, David, are you back with us? So, David, are you back with us yet? Just got back in. I'm not sure what's oh. going on. I think it's my horrible reception. I gave this big intro. And y'all probably didn't hear what I know to the listeners more importantly. So just y'all tell me where we're at. Well, <laughs> simply, Catherine, Catherine just talked about uh, the fact that Trump despises Governor Kemp so bad that he sounded like he genuinely would prefer Stacey Abrams to win if she beat Governor Kemp. And Catherine also mentioned something else interesting that I'm going to ask you about now, David, and you can take it from there. He failed to mention, as Catherine said, any other Republicans in the race. In this particular case, Vernon Jones, who was in attendance at this rally. Why has he not paid any attention to or embrace Vernon Jones, who is salivating at the prospect of getting his endorsement. Yeah, I think it's actually one of those rare cases where maybe Donald Trump listens to an advisor that understands that uh, Vernon Jones probably can't push this thing over the finish line, so therefore they're still hoping that uh, somebody else can. Because, you know, I remember a few weeks ago we discussed the poll with David Perdue, um, and so they're hoping they can get somebody um, that can just completely take out Brian Kemp without even a runoff. At some point, uh, does you know Donald Trump give up on anybody else and embrace Vernon Jones? And at that point, does that give Vernon Jones what he needs to either a with the help of say a Candace Taylor and anybody else in this race force a runoff, or b just beat Brian Kemp outright? Because if enough of the Republican base is willing to listen to anything Donald Trump says, then Brian Kemp's in real trouble. Would you agree, Tim? Possibly, but the thing is, Stacey Abrams? Uh, How could he think it was a good idea 
to one, at one of his own rallies to mention someone who is totally unacceptable to anyone who was in attendance at that rally and listening to him. It seems to me like the only thing he could be standing there doing is basically what he did during the U.S. Senate runoff and, and kind of talking his voters into sitting home if Brian Kemp is is the best that the Republicans can do. Uh, that That is really hating uh, a fellow Republican. Of course, I've never accused Trump exactly of being one, but still, uh, still, I, yeah. I, it's just mind-boggling. Well, I mean, you remember the, the, the team me, you know, country over party or country over person or whatever. For Donald Trump, it's not about the Republican Party. It's all about him. And if Brian Kemp isn't going to serve his needs, then he ain't going to give a crap about him. It doesn't matter if, if Brian Kemp's a conservative Republican and Stacey Abrams is a progressive Democrat. Donald Trump doesn't care. It's who's going to serve Donald Trump. And, and this is Exhibit A. Now, of course, the Republicans in attendance did, I think, shout some version of no. They didn't agree with him. It was kind of like when Donald Trump endorsed the, the van the the vaccine mandate at the Alabama rally. Now there, the people were just going to say no, and they were going to get vaccinated, and that was just going to be that. But here, you're right, Tim. They could stay home, and then that's where it's not two votes for Stacey Abrams, one taken out of the Brian Kemp column and two put him in a her column. It's just one out of the Brian Kemp column. You get enough of those, and you can win election to governor. E- Uh oh. I believe we lost lost David again. Boy, his reception must really be bad there. Uh, yeah. Um, I just wanted was, to say something. Uh, I think. Yeah, I was, I, is it I was going to ask you. Let, let, let me ask you this, Catherine, and, and then you okay. can take it from there. Um, I wanted to ask you the same question I asked David. You know, we've interviewed Vernon Jones a couple of times. Why has he not embraced Vernon Jones? Well, I think David made a good point that he might might think that he can't pull it off, and so he's not willing to knock out. The other thing is, is it might just be uh, Donald Trump trying to be provocative and, you know, get a headline by, you know, talking about Stacey Abrams from the podium. It's uh, it's hard to know, uh, thankfully. It's hard for me to understand why he does what some of the things that he does. But yeah, I, I don't know why, especially with Vernon Jones there, why he didn't give him a little, you know, a little love from the podium. Uh, I mean, if they think he can't, carry it off, then maybe they should help him, and this might have helped him. So, I, I, I don't know. I don't... It's the mystery why... You know, I'm, I'm, mis, I'm bamboozled by the fact that anybody pays any attention to him, so... Mm-hmm. David, David is texting me. 
uh, at present, he is having some reception problems. I am, while we continue to talk, Catherine, I am going to move to a computer where I can get on uh, get okay. on the the um, switchboard and see what I can do about all of this. Um, very sorry for those who are listening, but unfortunately, this is live internet radio yeah. with all of the fun that goes with it. For some real fun, folks, sometimes try coming on and expecting to talk to some folks, and you find that you are the only one there. Uh, <laughs> I know you and I both have done that, Catherine. And uh, Yes, we have. That is a not exactly a good time for all. Um, the other thing that we were going to start talking about, though, after um, Donald Trump, was the fact that uh, of where we stand heading into this year's off-year elections. There's been much talk about this and that and about uh, how parties in power do do not do very well in these elections. Normally, especially midterms, are about the performance of the parties in power, and sometimes that's why the opposition wins a lot of these midterms historically. But right now, things just, I don't know, look a little odd to me. It's almost like in the time of Trump, that down is up and, and, and up is down. Well, where do you think the president stands right now, uh, Catherine, with the with the public? Well, I think um, that he still has, you know, strong support from those uh, people who have always supported him. Uh-huh. But I think that I think that the larger Republican electorate, so the or the larger, you know, Republican voters, the bigger set, I think is frustrated with him and with um, some of his supporters, as well as with some of the elected officials, um, you know, continue to support him and uh, sort of kowtow to him. I uh, I saw Carly Fiorino, is that her name, on The View uh-huh. this week. And, um, I mean, I'm no big fan of hers, but she was talking about how she just feels that the um, Republican Party is not is not her party anymore. And we hear that from a lot of um, outspoken Republicans, not as many as we should. And that was one of the things that she said was that she knows there's a lot of, you know, especially old school Republicans who are very unhappy with the state of the party, but they're all uh, a little skittish about criticizing Trump or not. I mean, even so far as to not, not supporting him because he has such power in the, um, in the smaller set of Trump supporters that he has. So I think it's going to take some courage from some of those, 
unhappy Republicans to step forward and, you know, and speak out about their dissatisfaction with this Trump Republican Party. But I think there are a lot of them, and it's just going to take a few with some courage to bring out the rest of them out of the shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the situation is a bit fluid. President Biden has a, a decent approval rating, but not a great one. And Donald Trump being in the mix um, really... Um, I don't know, makes things odd. <laughs> is, is, that a, is that a good way to put it? Uh, yeah, and I mean, is it any wonder that the current president has uh, less than ideal um, approval? I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We just, ha- you know, Afghanistan, um, this immigration situation at the border, there's a lot of things um, that he's juggling, as well as, you know, not, not just Biden, but his administration. And, but he's still at, like, what I think the last approval rating I saw was, like, of um, likely voters was 53% approval. Yeah, something so, like that. So, I mean... Considering the circumstances we are in as a country, I I gotta say I think that's pretty good, <laughs> honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, Less than one year into his presidency. Um, I'm gonna have to leap here for just a second. I'm having trouble getting into blog talk radio switchboard and so there's going to be about two minutes of silence hey i'm back with everybody Catherine, can you hear me okay i can hear you yeah Excellent. Well, I want to welcome on our guest to the Kudzu Vine, uh, our doctor, Clayton Truder. Welcome to the show, Clayton. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a genuine pleasure. How are you doing this evening? Oh, doing good. Doing a lot better as I sit under a cell phone tower, um, the closest one to my house. Hopefully you have not been listening to my audio fiasco uh, the first 20 minutes of the show, but I got a hold of this thing just in time. And I want to tell you what, um, we're going to have you on about your book, Loserville, and that name does not sting quite as much after today's first Falcon win of the season. So I want to let you know that as well. <laughs> no, that was a fantastic win. The defense looked great. Well, let, let's be honest. Other than the young way Coos kicking, I don't know that anything went great this season <laughs> uh, related to the Falcons. You're being kind. Well, let, let's kind of back up. And I know you've got your Ph.D. and you're a historian and obviously a sports fan. Just kind of give our listeners uh, a little bit of bio on your um, about your life and work. Sure. Um, I'm a professor at Norwich University in Vermont. It's a small military college. Uh, I got my Ph.D. in U.S. History at Boston College. And my book, Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports, 
uh, is a product of graduate school. It's something I began working on as my dissertation. And after I wrote a dissertation, it eventually evolved into a book. I got interested in the history of professional sports franchise relocations and the expansion of major pro sports leagues in the late 20th century. And I was looking around for a topic for my dissertation. And my areas of interest are U.S. cultural history and the history of American cities. So in many ways, it was a natural fit. What impact did these have on American cities? And initially, my idea was to write about this in a very general sense, maybe more of an economic story. My advisor, I think, very astutely encouraged me to pick a city that um, the league expansions and uh, relocations that had a major impact on and use that as almost like a case study as a, as a microcosm for the broader story. And Atlanta was the perfect place for this because Atlanta, in many ways, invented the current model of luring pro sports franchises by offering public investments in stadiums, which then lured the leagues to town. Um, this has had some positive impacts and some negative impacts. In many ways, Atlanta's pioneering what's going on in subsequent decades in terms of that. So that's the, uh, the title of the book. Yes, well, that was kind of I mean, one of my next questions is why Atlanta, but you went ahead and answered that. Um, I'm going to get into some more things about this. The time in which Atlanta recruited, um, you know, pro sports being the Falcons and Braves uh, to Atlanta, um, segregation was still around, but has started to dissipate, you know, with the 64 and 65 Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts. Um, so it was getting better, and Atlanta made a conscious effort, at least the inside of Atlanta, the city limits, to do more than some other cities like Birmingham did at the time. Um, but in 66, the year of that, the Braves and the Falcons start playing in Atlanta, Georgia elects Lester Maddox as governor. And we were talking about this in my class because I'm a, a political science instructor, college here in Georgia. And I knew you were coming on the show, and I thought, you know, and I even talked to the kids of us. I said, you know, I don't know that Atlanta would have gotten those pro sports teams had Lester Maddox been governor in, say, 64, 62. Um, I, I want to see what you think about Lester Maddox and how him being a few years earlier would have impacted the Braves and Falcons coming to Atlanta. I think that's an astute point. Yeah, I think if Lester Maddox was in place, it would have been such an embarrassment that the leagues would not have touched Atlanta. Atlanta is really the first city in the Southeast and maybe really the South writ large to get pro sports because Atlanta was such an oasis compared to other cities in the region. Starting with William Hartsfield in the late 1940s, Atlanta had a very unique biracial governing coalition, which consisted of Atlanta's expanding black voter base, along with the city's professional and business classes. And that had been such a tight coalition under William Hartsfield successor, Ivan Allen, uh, that Atlanta looked very attractive, both for corporate investment from firms from around the country and eventually pro sports. Hartsfield didn't really have a lot of interest as a civic leader in pursuing this, but when Ivan Allen ran for mayor in 1961, his six-point forward Atlanta platform strongly emphasized a point he called Major League City, the idea that if Atlanta was going to be a major American city, it needed to have the amenities that New York and Chicago and Los Angeles did. And he thought among those were professional sports franchises. So he endorsed the building of a municipal stadium and also a municipal arena. And within a few years, you end up with the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and the Omni Arena, which lure the four major pro sports franchises to town. 1961, Allen's opponent in the mayoral runoff is Lester Maddox. 
and the business community in the city, of which Ivan Allen has been such a prominent part because he was the leader of the Atlanta Chamber, feared nothing more than Lester Maddox getting elected mayor, not just for his repugnant segregationist policies, but also for the way it would hurt Atlanta's reputation as a, uh, as a, as a progressive city within the, the still-segregated South. So I, I think that's a very astute point. In another way, Lester Maddox strangely um, benefits from the, um, what to, in terms of getting elected governor, benefits from Atlanta Stadium being where it is. Because on September 6, 1966, Atlanta has its first real riot since 1906, which is the Summer Hill riot. There, Atlanta the police shot a robbery suspect, which led to, a, to a, an uprising in the Summer Hill neighborhood not far from Atlanta Stadium. And this is one week before the uh, Democratic gubernatorial runoff, where basically everybody else running, Louis Arnold, uh, Jimmy Carter, James Gray, are running on a progressive platform, except for Maddox, who's running as a segregationist. And in the last week before the primary, he takes up this law and order cry that we need to stop the chaos that's happening in Atlanta with this, you know, this riot that happened not that far from the stadium. So Maddox probably does not get to the, the Democratic runoff which he eventually wins against Arnold without the, uh, or, or it's a strong possibility. He doesn't get to it without the Summer Hill riot happening right next to Atlanta stadium. Yes. Um, interesting point in history. Now, list you talk about, um, you talk about Atlanta Fulton County stadium. Um, let me just ask you this in your research. Was there any chance that a pro sports team, and I guess it would have had to have been baseball, uh, because Ponce de Leon Park was not equipped for football, and the Atlanta Municipal Auditorium uh, for basketball. Was there any chance that a pro team ever looked at coming to one of those two facilities, you know, two, four, five years earlier than they did? There was very little interest, but the big roadblock was William Hartsfield. William Hartsfield did not view public expenditures on pro sports stadiums as being legitimate or desirable. He had a particular concern that pro sports would bring the Dixie Mafia into town. Anytime this came up, he brought up this concern about organized crime in the city of it. He His pet project is really the airport. I mean, he's very much a pothole politician in a lot of ways, serve his various constituencies. But if he, if he had a pet project, it was building that airport, which played such a prominent role in making Atlanta a major city. Um, when Allen, his successor, comes in, he, he is a strong proponent of pro sports in a way that Hartsfield never is. And this very much changes the landscape of things. The, um, the, the state general assembly had already set up a sports uh, authority, a stadium authority for possibly building a stadium, but Hartsfield didn't even ever bother convening it. Um, Allen may puts Arthur Montgomery, who's the Coca-Cola bottler in Atlanta in charge. And they, they, they get going on trying to lure teams. And really, in fairly rapid succession, they end up with um, with the Braves and Falcons at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, and the Hawks and um, and the Hawks and Flames at the Omni under the auspices of Tom Cousins uh, Omni Coliseum, and then larger Omni Omni International Complex. Yes. Now, now talking about recruiting teams, I've list, I've uh, read to going long about the AFL. Um, I know that on the NFL side, the Raiders and the Vikings were both almost originally put in Atlanta. They may not have had those mascots. And that the um, uh, what, what are now the Oakland Athletics, I guess at the time the Philadelphia Athletics, almost came to Atlanta. 
Were there other teams that got closer than those I named to getting to be in Atlanta? Well, all of that was very close. I mean, the the AFL almost originally gave Atlanta a franchise in 1960. Hartsfield very openly campaigned against the idea of them getting an AFL franchise. They still were probably going to get one. There was a, an organization called Major Sports Inc., which was a collection of local businessmen who were working together to try to put together a privately financed uh, stadium originally at the Lakewood Park racetrack. Um, but what, what stymied it was really Baron Hilton. Baron Hilton was the owner of the L.A. Chargers franchise, which then became the San Diego Chargers and are now in L.A. again. And he pointed out to the other AFL owners that I'm going to be all by myself on the West Coast. I need a rival. Oakland got an AFL franchise without even having an ownership in place. Basically, somebody had filled out an application for Oakland, and they gave it to them simply to, to please uh, Baron Hilton. Um, so Atlanta could well have got that team. In terms of the A's, Charlie Finley, who's the owner of the Kansas City Athletics, the Philadelphia A's moved to Kansas City in 1954 and then move again to Oakland in 67. The Kansas City A's strongly considered uh, moving to Atlanta, and Charlie Finley was serious enough about it that he visited Atlanta in 1963 and, and actually helped pick the location for where Atlanta Stadium is. There was urban renewal land um, uh, amid various highways in uh, South Atlanta junctions coming together, and he suggested that as a, as a place for the stadium. Um, he doesn't get approval from the American League to go to Atlanta, in large part because the other owners kind of held Finley in contempt and viewed him as being an eccentric character and why waste such a good, strong market like Atlanta that's going to basically have a seven-state region all to itself on a retread owner like Charlie Finley. So the American League ownership essentially keeps him out of town because they wanted to save it for a stronger ownership group. So, yes, those cases were both very strong, certainly. Yes. Now, um, one final question before I turn it to Tim, and I may get to come back and ask some more. Um, and that is, uh, you know, you have those two arenas or those two facilities, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and the Omni, play such a critical role in your book. Were you able to um, visit those while they were still in existence, or did you have to, uh, you know, go to the sites they were in when you got to do research in Atlanta? I could only go to the sites. I mean, I had no connection whatsoever to Atlanta when I started the project. I mean, this has been a basically a decade-long venture on my part trying to learn about a city because I've taken very seriously the idea I'm writing about somebody else's community. I want to profoundly understand what's going on as best as I possibly can before I put my name out there saying that I understand what's happening in a place. So I spent a great deal of time doing research in Atlanta and simply just traveling around to get to know the terrain. And I, I went to the sites of which where, where both uh, venues were located at this point, as well as other historic venues in the city. But no, I never, I never, I never went inside either Atlanta Fulton County stadium or, or the Omni. Okay. And I'm going to follow it up with a piece of information. And I'm assuming you did get to see it. If you go in um, State Farm Arena, and there's that, I don't know if you've got to go in it, but between the upper and the lower level, there's a landing area, and that may have been reconfigured when they re- did the renovation, but there's a, a side stairwell you can go down. And if you go down that side stairwell, the old box offices that actually sat as a part of CNN Center, but were the Omni box offices that I think still have some Omni uh, you know, signage, if you will, on them, are still there intact in that stairwell. 
Yeah, yes, I was aware of that. I didn't get a chance to see that, but I, I certainly will at some point. That's yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I happened to punt it one day, but the escalator was so far, and somebody said, "Hey, go to the stairwell." It's nothing to look at as far as the stairwell. I think that ain't air conditioning. It's, it's kind of horrible, but then you get down there, you see the alumni, and immediately for me, it brought me back to the the '80s and my childhood. Well, I'm going to pass this thing over to Tim with some more questions. Tim. Good evening, sir, and thank you for being with us tonight. Um, thank you, I Tim. I appreciate up, it. I want to back up to the time period when this all started. Now, we're in the mid-1960s, and we know that mm-hmm. Atlanta had no major league sports teams, none. In yes. Wisconsin, Vince Lombardi and the mighty Green Bay Packers were right in the middle of creating one of the legendary NFL teams of all time. The Milwaukee Bucks would be coming in, in, in 1968, and, and then they would draft Lou Alcindor, they'd bring in Oscar Robertson, and they'd win a championship in 71. The Braves were also very successful um, in Wisconsin. From memory, I recall they won the World Series in 1957, they took the Yankees to seven games in 1958, and I believe they lost the National League uh, pennant in a playoff with the Dodgers in 1959. They had Hall of Famers on that team, Hank Aaron and Eddie Matthews and Warren Spahn, and they had a good fan base. So how in the world was the city of Atlanta able to lure the Braves away from such a sports-oriented state as Wisconsin? The core of it's a story of ownership. A guy named Lou Perini, who was from Boston, was a construction magnate, had owned the team mm-hmm. since they were in Boston. And he mm-hmm. sells them to a group of investors from Chicago who come to be known as the Rover Boys. They're essentially the sons of wealthy industrialists, mostly from Chicago. And they get involved seeing it as a fun business venture because it's sports and also a way to make money. Because even in the 1950s, pro sports franchises, their value was rapidly expanding, and whoever owned a team and then sold it to somebody else seemed to make a killing on it usually. In 1962, Mm -hmm. the Milwaukee Braves tried to do a joint stock sale, just like the Packers do. The Packers have this degree of public ownership to them. They figure, hey, this works, and this worked for the Packers. Why can't it work for us? The public in, in Wisconsin did not buy into it. They saw it as being something of a cynical cash grab. Uh, the Braves sold, I think, like 15,000 out of 110,000 shares they were attempting to sell. And once that failed, they started to look for greener pastures. And there were several cities interested in this franchise. And Atlanta was the most, um, I guess you'd say, the juiciest proposition, primarily because of its potential media market. Um, Atlanta being the hub of a seven-state region that had no major professional sports, all the way up to Washington, D.C. to the north and into Texas to the West, this was essentially the potential media market for a team. At the Mm -hmm. same time in Milwaukee, you're facing a situation where you're always hemmed into the South by the, uh, by the two Chicago teams to the North. You're all Mm -hmm. of a sudden hemmed in by the Minnesota twins. So their market got smaller and smaller and they looked to Atlanta and you had a city that was willing to build them a stadium. It was very enthusiastic about it. So the, the efforts to begin moving really are a product of this. There are several other smaller reasons, but I would say primarily it's, it's an ownership group that's 
disgruntled after the stock sale, which really leads to the uh, brewers looking for another city. And Atlanta was certainly the best possible option among those available. Hmm. Interesting. Now, at the same time all of that was going on, uh, I want to make mention of my favorite governor Georgia ever had, many consider him the best governor Georgia ever had, a fellow by the name of Carl Sanders, who was like the first of the Southern progressive governors. Uh, he mm-hmm. was young. I think he was 36 when he became governor. Um, and it just so happens that he went to school with a rich insurance executive who you may mention of by the name of Rankin Smith. Had that scenario not been present, had Carl Sanders not been friends with Rankin Smith, would the Atlanta Falcons have come to Atlanta with with a new NFL franchise when they did? It probably would have ended up in AL Town because when uh-huh. once once the uh, stadium deal was in place, once the Milwaukee Braves signed a lease, and the two leagues knew that there was going to be a multi uh, multi sport stadium in Atlanta, they started fighting uh, fighting for Atlanta. The AFL had an offer in place. There was a guy named Leonard Wrench who was the head of Cox Broadcasting who was um, Mm -hmm. an executive at WSB, who had an AFL expansion franchise ready to go for Atlanta in case the NFL deal faltered, which it looked like it was going to until Carl Sanders was able to get his former um, fraternity brother Smith uh, to invest in the team. Uh, So Atlanta ends up in the NFL primarily because of Sanders' intervention. They could well have been an AFL franchise otherwise, but I think the mentality of the leadership in Atlanta, uh, they would certainly wanted to be in the NFL. Because for Allen, for the civic leadership, for the the guys in the Atlanta chamber at the time, a big aspect of becoming major league was trying to get a sense of both civic unity as well as a source of prestige for them. Being associated with the NFL was certainly the more prestigious league between the two prior to the merger. The merger only ends up happening like six months later after Atlanta gets a franchise. But before the, there's an understanding that these leagues are going to come together, and frankly, before Super Bowl three, when the Jets show that the AFL could compete with the NFL, it was seen as the much lesser proper. If you look at the four major professional sports franchises they ended up with, uh, with the Braves, the Falcons, the Flames, and the Hawks, in each instance, they ended up in the primary league as opposed to one of the competitor leagues, such as the American Basketball Association or the AFL or the World Hockey Association. Atlanta wanted to be major league in the very traditional standard sense, and they became very successful at doing so very quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, the Braves, the Hawks, the Falcons have all been here for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. On two occasions, we tried ice hockey, and from what I could see of people who would attend there, they would have six to 8,000 very devoted fans that would follow these ice hockey teams. And yet ice hockey never did quite go over the way that the other pro sports did. What happened to ice hockey in Atlanta? Well, I would actually argue that the Flames initially were quite successful in the early years. First of all, it was a very novel attraction. There had never been pro hockey in the Southeast before, with the exception of a minor league team in Nashville, I mean, in Knoxville for a couple of years in the early 60s. 
So in the early 70s at the Omni, it was one of the best Friday, night down, Friday nights out in town for kind of upscale consumers, particularly the Flames cultivated a very upscale north side kind of fan base. Their early advertising talked about Atlanta's Ice Society, and they tried to present it very much as a prestigious kind of elegant activity. You'd see women in furs, men in suits at the games um, for the Flames, and they actually drew fairly well in the early years and performed pretty well, too. Their general manager, a guy named Cliff Fletcher, had been an assistant GM with the Montreal Canadiens and was a, had a great eye for talent and built a very, a very solid defensively-oriented team that made the playoffs in six of their eight years in town. I think mm-hmm. the Flames' biggest problem was really having, having Tom Cousins as the owner in the sense that he had a lot of different moving parts. He had some real estate bankruptcy issues related to the Omni International Complex in the late 1970s, and he was looking to get out from some of his investments by that time in the decade. He's able to sell the Hawks to Ted Turner, really for pennies on the dollar compared to what other NBA teams were going for at the time. Uh, and he ends up selling the, selling the Flames for a fantastic price of over $20 million, which was nearly twice as much as an NHL team had ever uh, been sold for when he sells the Flames to Calgary in, in 1980. So I think in that case, Cousins had so many different things going on. He's looking to help revitalize downtown that his ownership was, I mean, the Flames were really just part of a larger corporation and other issues that the Omni Group was facing ended up having a big impact on that organization. I think in terms of the Thrashers, my, my impression is that they had ownership issues too, but I think their failure is a little bit different kind of thing. The Flames were very much out there on an island. There had never been an NHL team in the South before the Flames came to town, and they actually hung in there pretty well for a few years. Once the Thrashers were there, there were a number of NHL teams in the region, and things just for whatever reason didn't pan out. And, 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 Tim, I agree with your assertion about that. You had a, you had a very rabid core fan base for, for the Thrashers, as you would have for a lot of the other teams in the Southeast. Um, maybe not so much a casual fan base. I think that's been a problem for a lot of the Southern hockey teams, that the person flipping by on television isn't going to stick with the game on a, on a random Tuesday night. The, the audience is very much this, this, this niche who almost likes that their activity is, is, is a niche activity. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think – I think that's that's been been an issue with the Southeast in general and Atlanta specifically. But I think the Flames, I think they're a little bit misunderstood and they get kind of a bad rap. And I hope that's something my book helps to correct. I think they were a well-run organization in terms of the actual management of the day-to-day operation of the team. And they actually did have a base of support. Uh, And I think more and more, particularly Native Southerners, embraced the team as they were here longer, that this team looked like it was something that was here to stay. It was an exciting winter diversion. And, uh, you know, football is certainly very popular as a contact physical sport in the region. And hockey, for a lot of people, served that role for them in the winter. Mm. Um, one final question, then I'm going to throw it back to David to ask some more questions and wrap this segment up. But I wanted to ask you about um, the, the, the Sun Belt. The, Atlanta was the first city to make a big score on attracting professional sports in the Sun Belt region. Of course, since then, we've seen New Orleans and Charlotte and Nashville and way out in Phoenix. All these places attract professional sports. And you have stated that other cities have followed Atlanta's model for attracting pro sports uh, franchises. What makes Atlanta's model 
for doing that so unique and successful. Before Atlanta got involved with trying to lure pro sports, there would be individual efforts to lure a specific team, to build a specific venue, to add on to a specific stadium, to to bring a particular team to town. What Atlanta did was almost bring a corporate-type campaign in place to bring pro sports in a more general sense to town. For the Atlanta's leadership, it was not just about getting one particular team. They were focused from the beginning of the Allen administration respects in trying to bring in the whole range of sports and they also brought in this approach where they tried to lure teams in the same way that atlanta had since the 1920s so successfully lured branch plants or factories from companies from other parts of the country so atlanta had this very good model of of hyping itself of rolling out the red carpet for people to get say ford or general motors to bring an assembly plant to town they brought that same approach to trying to bring pro sports in, and nobody's ever really tried that before. And Atlanta has, is, is one of the great cities I've ever seen in terms of self-promotion, and they did a fantastic job in terms of doing this in terms of getting pro sports. And you see a number of other cities, whether it's San Diego or Phoenix or Tampa, that either explicitly model themselves after what Atlanta did, that we will be the next Atlanta. You see civic leaders in communities talking about this that we're going to try to do what Atlanta did, or very obviously just following that model with the corporate community and the political leadership taking on this, this corporate campaign type uh, approach to bringing teams to town. So that's what Atlanta makes new about uh, pro sports in terms of the, the expansion of these leagues and the relocation of franchises. Oh, well, that's fascinating. And I'm going to send it back to David now, and I'm sure he's going to hit more on the Loserville image. David, go ahead. Yes, well, Thank I you. want to bring up the title, and obviously, you know, the first, um, unfortunately, 10 years of the Falcons or more until Steve Barkowski got to the voting, that um The Braves not really never quite get it together in a big way until the 90s, the Hawks, have yet to make the NBA Finals, although this past year gives us hope. But um, there's a fifth sport that doesn't fit in with the title in Atlanta, and I don't know how much you cover it. But the Atlanta Chiefs won the NASL title, and then the newer version, the Atlanta United, made the playoffs from year one and has won like three trophies in now their fifth year of existence. And they could theoretically win another one this year because they finally got it going. How does soccer fit into your book, and how does it not fit into the term Loserville with both uh, teams both winning championships? Well, soccer plays a prominent role in my book. I talk about the Chiefs to a great extent. I mean, they're a much smaller operation than what's going on with the other four teams, and they're certainly an extension of the Braves because they're essentially owned by the Atlanta Braves uh, leadership, the LaSalle Corporation. Um, so they're an extension of that. In a broader sense, though, I would say my book, the title Loserville, is not a commentary on the president. In the, in the last 25 years, Atlanta's team, the Braves have obviously been incredibly successful, uh, having really one of the best operations in baseball since the 1990s. The Falcons have had several periods of, of periods of significant success, and the Hawks in recent years have been very. I mean, not just this past year, but within the last uh, few years, in terms of recent memory, the Hawks have been very good. The title is a commentary on Atlanta in the 60s and 70s, which is the primary focus of the book. My later chapters go into what's happened since the, ni- the 1980s onwards, but the title, is, it's, the title comes from a, uh, 
two-part front-page series by Louis Grizzard in the Atlanta Constitution in July 1975, bemoaning the lack of on-field success and success at the box office faced by Atlanta's teams in their first major league decade. Roy Blount later, a couple of years later, uses the title Losersville USA, an appropriation of that in Sports Illustrated. And my title is essentially riffing on that particular time and place in Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta's teams have really done well in recent decades. And in terms of soccer, I, t- I talk about the United to some extent. Um, I talk about the Chiefs to a greater extent because they're, they're part of this time period. And I think such an interesting, not even footnote, but I think an interesting, um, uh, an interesting organizational story in the history of Atlanta. So the title, the title is, is, is really a reference to this particular time and place. And soccer de- definitely does figure into the book. Yes, and, and speaking of the Chiefs, you mentioned the Braves on them, and um, they played in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium most of the time. But for one season, and I found this out after my high school football career where I played at Terra Stadium, they moved out of mm-hmm. Atlanta and moved to Jonesboro and play at Terra Stadium, which was the Clayton County Public Schools shared football and track facility and now soccer facility. Um, why did they move? to the suburbs, essentially, into a far less glamorous um, venue, even though it's an outstanding high school stadium. Well, the Braves' ownership sold the uh, the Chiefs in the early 70s to Tom Cousins, who gave it a crack in the one year at Terra Stadium. But uh, when it worked out, they ended, up, uh, they ended up disbanding, along with a lot of the other teams in the NASL. Atlanta is actually one of the more successful franchises in that league, not just in terms of attendance. They drew... Most years they drew between six, 7,000 people a game. There were many teams in that league that were drawing under 2,000 people a game. They were also very mm. successful on the field in their early years as well. So that's, that's definitely one of the success stories of that league in which virtually every team in it went out of business at some point. So the Chiefs within the context of that league were a very successful organization. And I think actually having a major league team backing them was one of the reasons that they had people, in spite of some of the brave struggles, they understand leading a big pro sports operation. And I think that leads to another theme in my book, which is I think a lot of people in business underestimate how particular and specific pro sports is as a business and how much expertise you need in that field in which to succeed in it. I mean, Rankin Smith was great at selling insurance, had a very successful company. When he ran the Falcons, he relied on a lot of guys who worked in his insurance business to play prominent roles in the organization guys that weren't really football guys, and I think that certainly was to the detriment of the on-the-field product. The Braves had, had out-of-town ownership, essentially. I mean, you had Bill Bartholomew, who was one of the principals with the uh, company who played a prominent role and was in town, but for the most part, the Braves' ownership was elsewhere. And in the case of Tom Cousins with the, with the Hawks and the Flames, he had a lot of different moving parts in his organization, and this was not his primary focus. So I think in the case of Atlanta, as well as many of these other Sunbelt cities, you have people that are incredibly successful in their, their area of expertise, but when they get into pro sports, it proves to be a harder business than, than it looks from the outside. Ray Kroc, who, the, who founded McDonald's, who later owned the San Diego Padres, said something along the lines of, if only it was as easy to sell hamburgers, uh, or oh, it was only as easy to sell hamburgers as it is to field a winning Major League Baseball team. I mean, it's a very different kind of business than, than the one he was involved in. And despite having a very uh, wealthy owner in, in Ray Kroc, the Padres struggled for many years. Yes. Well, we've talked a lot about team sports 
Uh, does your book touch much on individual sporting events that might have occurred in Atlanta? Yeah, I, I go into different things, particular, particularly prominent events that happened at Atlanta Stadium as well as the Omni. I go into – I mean, there's a fair amount of talk about professional wrestling because that played such a prominent role at the Omni and had been such a major sport in Atlanta in previous uh, decades. I talk a little bit about the Ollie Quarry fight. Um, I talk a fair amount about Atlanta's what I would call pre-existing sporting culture, the, what, what people in town did for entertainment before the, the big leagues got there. Because those teams don't just disappear because there are professional teams wearing Atlantis across their chest. I mean, I'm talking about golf. I'm talking about boating. I'm talking about stock car racing. I'm talking about pro wrestling. And I'm especially talking about college football, which gets even more popular during this time period, particularly with the rise of the University of Georgia as being the foil to Alabama and the SEC. Georgia Tech remains a prominent program throughout this time period. The historically black colleges in Atlanta have certainly have a strong base of support, too as well as high school football. Uh, the Falcons, I think, in many ways struggled because they were the third most important football game of the weekend to many people. They had their Friday night high school game. On Saturday, they had Georgia Tech or Georgia. or And then there was Sunday with the Falcons, who were uh, in many ways an afterthought for many people who had been such passionate supporters of high school football and college football for many years before the Falcons came to town. Yes. Well, and so you mentioned pro wrestling. Now, I actually was a consultant at one point with World Championship Wrestling. I was in oh, the wow. Omni when War Games sold it out. I was there when 800 people came uh, in the Omni, and, and it was I, pretty much empty. And I was there when Bill Goldberg defeated Hulk Hogan in the Georgia Dome with about 40,000. Uh, give us some of your uh, highlights of Atlanta pro wrestling. Well, well, I focus more on the on the really the sixties and seventies in Atlanta when they're okay. they're wrestling at the city auditorium is probably for, to the greatest extent. In the seventies, Georgia Championship Wrestling had monthly showcases at the Omni, which very frequently sold out. Um, they drew much better than professional basketball did in, did at the arena. An embarrassing thing for the Hawks in particular is on many Friday nights at the Omni, you had Pete Maravich playing there with the Hawks at the brand new Omni Arena. And a couple miles down the road at the city auditorium, which had been an armory built during the Cleveland administration, you had 5,000 people standing room only, hooting and hollering, you know, cheering on the, cheering on the faces, booing the heels. And you had 3,000 people watching Pete Maravich, the most popular basketball player in the country, playing in this brand new arena. So pro wrestling had such a strong, devoted following in a way that I think it was tough for a lot of the competing teams to, uh, particularly the Hawks in that context, to, um, to deal with. Hey, there's a reason Jimmy Carter put wrestling two and a headlock instead of Pete Maravich. Um, and you talk <laughs> about that uh, old city auditorium. I took the Miller analogies test to get into Georgia State at that uh, facility. It still exists. It's been renovated, and it's part of the Georgia State campus. It's more of an administrative building. So um, that thing's I guess it's like 125 years old now. Um, well, now let's get to the payoff here. If people want to read this book, I know it's not out yet. Tell the people where they can um, buy this book when it comes out. Sure. It's fantastic. Um, the book is called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. My name is Clayton Truder. The book is being published by the University of Nebraska Press. It comes out in early 2022. 
It is available now for pre-order from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all your well-known online book retailers. Um, in the lead-up to the book coming out, um, if, in addition to pre-ordering it, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at Clayton Truder. I'm also on Facebook, and I'd be happy to be your friend. And in terms of the City Auditorium, about three weeks ago on Facebook, I posted a, uh, I posted a picture of the City Auditorium and said, what's your greatest memory of it? I've had like 2,000 people respond with memories of the City Auditorium. So it's been great. It's been very interesting, an interesting moment of nostalgia on the, um, I, I, I think the page is called Atlanta Memories that it's on on Facebook. But uh, yeah, I'm on there too. And I'd love to, love to talk with you there as well. And thank you guys so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Yes. Well, you told us the Twitter handle. I know LinkedIn, you're there too. Um, yep. So that, that is just excellent. Um, and any chance the book's going to come out on audio? That's, that's my understanding is yes, it'll be, it's available on, it will become available on Kindle the same day it becomes available um, uh, in print. And Nebraska typically does books on audible or audio books as well. Um, I mean, all their other recent titles have, and my impression is that this will be as well at some point. I don't know when. Well, excellent. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. And, And of course, we may have to send you questions just for our, you know, edification. And if something comes up and we have a excuse to have you on again, um, we, we'd love to. And we may see some other titles that, that are somehow relevant to our show. But, but Clayton, it has been excellent having you on the show this evening. Oh, thank you so much. Anytime. Happy to come on any Sunday night. Thank you so much. Thank you, yes. sir. Dr. Dr. Clayton Truder. Um, you know, a renowned author. He's written a lot of books and articles. I mean, if you look it up, you're going to see so much content, you know, beyond this book, but the fact that he's put this together. I mean, the cover of it is this outstanding aerial view of Atlanta Fulton County Stadiums, one of the most cost-efficient projects you'll ever see in pro sports. While it may not be the best football stadium ever to exist, was a good baseball stadium. Um it was a, a, an effort in how to uh, come in under budget and on time. Um, well, Absolutely. interesting guest. Uh, Tim? Um, yes, he was a fascinating guest. I was sitting here thinking about all the things I saw in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium over the years and, and, and all the history that was made there, but uh, – it, it was uh, uh, it, it, he's one of those guests that that we didn't get to ask half the questions that we would have loved to ask, you know, especially about a lot more about the political people involved in this thing. Oh, definitely, and and you know, you and I have such experiences. I worked at um, the facility, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. My grandmother is one of the few people that probably worked for the Falcons, Braves, and um, Chiefs. And so, um, you know, amazing. I grew up in it. And so, um, you know, I think I could tell Clayton a few things. He probably just fascinating stories just because of being there. Catherine, I want to bring you back in. You, of course, were so kind to let Tim and I ask all these questions. Um, but, but what were your thoughts on Clayton and his, and his book? You know, I thought it was very interesting, some of the um, insights that he mentioned. You know, I'm just not a sports person. I don't really understand uh and and it's a it's a shortcoming of mine i recognize but it was interesting to hear how um atlanta you know sort of led the charge for this uh 
this approach to uh, courting uh, professional sports. That I think that was an interesting, uh, you know, bit of information. But I, he was very interesting, and you guys asked great yes. questions. Well, thank you. We were well, lucky. Um, was, we were lucky. I was going to say we were lucky during that time period that we had Ivan Allen as the mayor of Atlanta and Carl Sanders as the governor of Georgia. As you mentioned, David, uh, it had these things happened a few months later, it could have gone downhill in a hurry in the other direction, right? Yes, because I mean, you hear the stories that Birmingham was far closer to Atlanta in a lot of economic ways, and Birmingham mm-hmm. was never considered that period because they were so toxic on uh, the issues of race. And imagine uh, Lester, so, Lester Maddox, you know, like you yeah, said. he was cut from that yeah. cloth. Yeah, he yeah. he would have been proud to hang out with um, the George Wallace of the '60s, uh, Bull Connor of the '60s, and that, that's a yeah. sad statement on him. Um, well, I want, again, I want to thank Clayton. I want to apologize for my um, cell reception issues, but I have found the fix for this evening. Um, although a car in the parking lot near the uh, cell tower is not where I'd always want to do the show. But thank you all for both of y'all having to cover in such an emergency. Next week we have Evan Scrimshaw. We know this past week the Canadian elections happened. We're going to get a full recap of those from Evan, and then we're going to talk about some, um, you know, trends on where American politics is going. So we'll be excited to have Evan on the show next week. Till then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, everybody. Good night, y'all.